Good morning. <clears throat> I have mostly a good throat this week. Thank you for putting up with last week, my voice. I listened to it in the van on the way to Michigan. and I apologize. I also apologize for my regular voice, but uh, that's all right. We'll make it. Thank you, guys. <coughs> I don't know what that is, but all right, I'm good. Here we go. Um, we are in week three of our Advent series, and uh, I am enjoying this. I'm enjoying the opportunity to preach. It tends to happen around this time because for some reason people have kids. Um, so I enjoy the winter. It's my chance to get up and bat a little bit. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to continue in the first gospel of the New Testament, at least for our purposes today. Last week was fun for me because I enjoy talking about stories, as you know, uh, we talked about this week. Um, we have a bit of a more challenging topic, uh, a little bit more personal, I think, uh, in nature. And we talk about the idea of actually working through some difficult stuff, even at Christmas. It's a common thing, I think, for most people, not just as comfort idols, uh, to want to table the difficult things for January, uh, to just be able to enjoy the holidays, act like things aren't wrong, uh, ignore whatever problems are there, or just acknowledge them but simply move them to January. We'll talk about some difficult things now here on the 17th, in the middle of Christmas season, a couple days before, well, a week before it happens. I just have really one question that I think we'll launch today uh, for where we need to go, and that's this. What are you looking for right now? What are you looking for right now? I, I think for some of you, it may honestly just be simply, preacher, I'm just looking for January. <laughs> Get past all this. Get past all this, the crazy stuff. It seems like time just flies. There's never enough time. I've got a party this day. I've got a responsibility that night. Our house gathering's doing something this night. I still got to work. I just, I just, I just <sighs> need to breathe. I need to breathe. And January, January brings, well, really gloomy time, but nothing's going on, all right? I think for some of us, though, what we're looking for is a lot of the excitement of the Christmas season. For some of it, it might just be peace or a Christmas bonus or vacation time for the holidays or traveling and even seeing family. Some of you are actually interested in that. Uh, getting the perfect gifts, right? Things like having the, the perfect party or getting rest and slowing down or having a flannel on with a nice cup of coffee and a book next to a fire with soft Michael Buble on. I got weirdly specific there at the end. I'm sorry about that. Um, but maybe most of us haven't actually thought about it yet. Like, what are we looking for? I guess the question, though, is why not? Because why would we not put thought into something that seems so foundational and so every day for us? Why do we spend so much time looking for that which we don't even know? Why do we spend so much time looking every day, every morning? We get up, we get dressed, we go to work looking for something? But what is that? Can you name it? In the spirit of the season, I have a quote from Master Yoda. Uh, <laughs> he says this, This one a long time have I watched. All his life has he looked away to the future, to the horizon, Never his mind on where he was, hmm? what he was doing. Adventure, <laughs> excitement. <laughs> a Jedi craves not these things. I could do that in my Yoda voice. You won't like it. You'd laugh at me. But when we think about this, this is this is this is people I know. This is me. This was me for all of high school, most of college. This is me even in young married life. And oftentimes this is still me. All my life I have looked away to the future, to, to the horizon. Something else is coming. Never my mind was on where I was, what I was doing. I think so. We ask this question, what are you looking for? And I don't know, I'm looking ahead to something else. I don't, I don't recognize what's around me, where I'm at right now, where I'm going now. 
So then I guess the question is, what happens right now when the preacher shows up and says, what are you looking for? How do you deal with that on Sunday morning, December 17th at 11.24 a.m.? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? I don't think most of you were planning on showing up to church and having a hard question launched at you. Church is supposed to be a time where we gather and sing like we did Christmas carols and get ready for Christmas, the birth of the king, and we celebrate all that together. We look forward to parties. But there's a hard question that we have to deal with. What things crossed your mind earlier when I asked what you're looking for? Make note of those. Take those captive. Because in our text today, some men show up on the scene, right? And they ask the hardest question that a man could hear. And he has to deal with it. When we look at our passage, we see weird things at the beginning of Matthew. Why did Matthew include all of these things? Genealogies, this, this story of these wise men. Why not just skip straight to the miracles? let alone the conception of being a miracle. Why don't we just skip to the action? Skip to Jesus on the scene, making things happen. Power, might, the king, right? Matthew's trying to present Jesus to the Jews as king. Skip to the good stuff. I think, first of all, he doesn't skip there because it, it happened. I mean, as we talked about last week, it's good news. Something has already happened. It is truth, and so we have to recognize it as such. But second, though, and m- most probably primarily, I think it's because it reveals something. If not about Jesus himself, then, then about us. As we talked about last week, we, we need to recognize the truth about who Jesus is and that it is good news. It is something that requires something from us. We can't just listen to it and table it. And today, it's going to be about us as well when we think about the fact that it reveals really just us. Not just something about us, but us, our hearts. Because in our passage, we're going to see that King's Herod heart is revealed. He's exposed today. So I don't know if you came to church today expecting to get exposed, expecting to open up your chest and do some heart surgery. But it's time for us to reveal what's going on inside. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to bounce around a little bit. Verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the, day, <coughs> in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. And Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Verse 22. That when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, we pray today that as we read your word and you're revealing yourself to us, that we would understand you as you are, not as we would want you to be. 
there's so much in this season that is emotional and sentimental, and I love every bit of it. But Father, we cannot be emotional uh, or sentimental about who you are, because you have revealed yourself clearly, and you've revealed yourself as you want to be known. And Father, we know that you take delight in those that understand you and know you. So Father, help us to see you as you are. Help us to see ourselves today as we are. It's easy for us to romanticize ourselves and to see what we want to see in our own self-image. Father, help us see the reality of our hearts as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first point today, our heart desires death to all rivals. Our heart desires death to all rivals. A little extreme. I think it's merited by the text, and we'll get there in a little bit. What's interesting about this account of the birth of Jesus is that it's unique specifically to the book of Matthew. Wise men, sages, and magicians from the eastern lands uh, have come to Jerusalem when Jesus was an infant, still in Bethlehem. They came before the ruler of Judea, King Herod, and said, Where is the one born king of the Jews? Now, this is not them walking up to the manger, as we typically see, that makes for a much nicer nativity-looking thing. They uh, come when he is two years or younger, as we're going to see in just a moment. But he had been born. They came, and they came to Herod, right? It's not uncommon for astrologists, uh, wise men in the ancient times, to uh, be inspired by something that happens in the sky. Uh, it's certainly rooted in uh, their history already when they think about Rome and a star falling and, and the two brothers uh, coming from that and ultimately founding uh, the nation of Rome. It's not uncommon for those things to happen. And so they see, indeed, this true light appear and guide them to Jerusalem. And they come to Herod, and they ask a question, where is the one born king of the Jews? And Herod like looks down at his shirt, and he says, hello, my name is child born king of the Jews. Me, right? You're looking for me? King of the Jews? That's me. You know, you walk into a palace, it's going to alarm the person actually sitting on the throne if you ask them, where's the king that was just born? They're like, excuse me, I had a son? What just happened? It's going to be a little bit alarming, right? The text tells us that Herod was disturbed or alarmed, right? That's one of the great understatements of the Bible that we've seen. (laughs) History tells us that Herod was really an unusually violent ruler. Even by the standards of the time, it was not uncommon, uh, particularly for him, to kill family members or court members that would challenge him so that his absolute power would be unchallenged. That's that's common already in monarchies in general, uh, but Herod was particularly violent. So what happens here is the wise men are called to the, the Magi. Let's just call them that. The Magi are called to uh, this area by the star, and they ask Herod, where is he? Herod says, I don't know. You find him, let me know. I would like to worship as well. That would be, that'd be good for me to be able to, to partake in that. Let's make that happen. Cool? Awesome. All right. And he sends them on. They find him, right? And they worship. They, they, well, they acknowledge him, at least we'll call it that. They acknowledge him for what he is. Then they get a vision and saying, don't return that way. Herod wants to kill him, go home a different way. So they go home, they avoid him, and Herod realizes what happens. And what happens next? Herod decides to murder the children that are two, the boys that are two and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. And some estimates, this sounds really terrible, it is, um, it's not the worst that we've seen in Scripture. The worst that we've seen in Scripture probably was back in Egypt the first time um, when Moses was born. But in this particular case, we're at least dealing with probably 20 to 30 male children just in Bethlehem, let alone the surrounding territory. Now, even this is not uncommon in the time. But it's still clearly violent. It's still clearly selfish. It's still clearly overreaction when you think about the damage that happens to this they just had a census two years ago and all these kids have been born and someone walks into your home takes your boy two 
or younger and brutally murder someone, likely in front of you. And Jesus would be too, if not for Egypt. Joseph receives a vision and goes to Egypt. Look at this, Jesus the refugee. We have such a hard time with refugees in our culture. Jesus was a refugee. In fact, it was prophesied that he would be, so that out of Egypt I call my son. But what we see ultimately here with Herod is this. The account of deception and fear, bloodshed, injustice, and, and homelessness is all too familiar. This is, this is a world that we know. We know a world full of fear and bloodshed and injustice and, and homelessness. We see that all the time. Great evil is easily abroad in our world. And one of the most common things that we try to do is, is to pin it on something, to name it, to be able to name the evil. That way our villain, our foe, has a face. Typically, this falls into the political system, right? So those that are poor and oppressed often look to those who have and see them as evil, as in instituting evil laws, as bringing about evil practices of not uh, advocating for them or caring for them. And so evil becomes those, those extreme people that, that we are out of contact with. We also happen to be powerless against them. For others, uh, they may look at those that are weak and poor, and poor and say, no, they're are the dregs of society. They're the problems. They're the ones that are dragging us down. And so you get middle-class people who look down on the poor, aspire to be the rich, and are caught in the middle and happen to be powerless to do anything. As long as we can name the evil, and as long as we can name it as not us, we're good, right? It's easy to make that political. But the full teaching of the Bible is that the source of the world's evil is every human heart what's most disturbing about this story is that King Herod's reaction to Christ is at least in this sense a picture of each one of us think about the scenario if you want to be king and someone else comes along saying that they're the king one of you has to go there can only be one king. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. If we're going to have an authority, a singular authority, only one of us can be there. And here's the problem. Jesus has come into this world claiming to be God, the king. I know, right? That's a, that's a big deal. There is another king that's shown up. And he says, hey, 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 I'm the king. If I liked Elvis, you would have a terrible time today because I would be all over these king references. He shows up. I'm the king. What are you going to do? Jesus is so kingly, so authoritative, so absolute in power that he says this in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me, the king, and does not, Hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. This king shows up on the scene and he commands for an allegiance to him that is so supreme, so full, that it makes all other commitments look weak by comparison. It's a claim of absolute authority. There's unconditional loyalty required to this king and it inevitably triggers deep resistance within the human heart the greatest trigger warning of our generation authority we talked about it last weekend in our doctrine of god class god is in control he has the might to do whatever he wants he's all powerful he doesn't only have the might he has the Right. He is king of the universe. He has all authority. And so, for us, we little mini King Herod sit on the throne of our heart, and Jesus comes a-knocking, right? He says, I'm the king. You need to abdicate the throne. But the problem is, is that resistance remains in our heart. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, 
It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Hatefulness towards God's enmity with God. At the core of the human heart is an impulse that says, no one tells me what to do. No one tells me what to do. I've heard this in recent days, even from among our people, and I'm sure some of you have as well. I've heard this in my own heart. No one tells me what to do. How dare you tell me what to do? See, culture and training can go a long way towards kind of teaching us to to hide, right, that deep instinct, even from ourselves. We want to hide it from ourselves. We want to be seen as cooperative, as as a team player, or as a kind and loving person, right? Those are the socially accepted good things that actually do promote us. It moves us along if we actually can possess these things. And so we want to look like that is the case, and we want to see ourselves that way too. And there are many reasons why it's necessary for us to live in denial (laughs) as to how powerful this instinct is, but no amount of education or therapy can remove it. Our hearts are, as Jeremiah would say, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? According to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from the self-centeredness, the self-righteousness, and the self-absorption of every human heart. This is the season for giving so that we can get. Comparisons. We spent this much, so they need to spend that much. We spent this much on that kid, and we need to spend this much on that kid as well. Fairness is our motto. Also that we can get. If we don't get gifts, then at least we get admiration. If we don't get admiration, then at least we get guilt. If we don't get guilt, then at least we can get whatever. We are self-absorbed, we are self-centered, and we are self-righteous. Each of us wants the world to orbit around us and, and our needs and, and, and our desires. We get tunnel vision on what we're doing for our goals, for our purposes. Yeah, other people may be involved and things may even be for them. But it's all so that I can ultimately get what I want. We are master manipulators. We don't want to serve God. We don't want to serve our neighbor. In fact, we want them to serve us. So again, in every heart is a little King Herod who wants to rule. Wants to rule. I think most of us have actually thought about that and and accepted it, right? But the problem is that we tend to ignore the fact that we also feel threatened. We feel threatened by anything that might compromise our own little omnipotence and sovereignty. No one tells me what to do. There's a natural enmity of the human heart against all claims of sovereignty over it. It rises up in, in little things when minor claims are made over us, right? When someone expects us to be at an event, right? And we go, I'm only going because I want to. That's why I'm going, right? Someone has exerted some authority over you and said, hey, you should be here. And you're like, ah, Okay, just because I want to, right? right. That's what we tell ourselves. No, I don't want to. How dare you impose something on me? We have little tiffs every time. Sorry, Tiffany. We have little skirmishes uh, every time someone challenges our authority a little bit. That rises up. We feel that. We see that. And we neglect to think about where it comes from. Jesus' claims of authority are not little they're not minor they're not only on sunday they're not only on wednesday they're not only on friday and saturdays when we have a class they're not only when you have an event to go to jesus's claims of authority are ultimate and infinite 
no heart unaided can gladly surrender to them. Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 11, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. I think the seeker-sensitive movement in church has missed this verse. No one is seeking God. He said, well, how can that be? How can it be that no human being is seeking for God? There are lots of people in my workplace who say, oh, I'm just, I'm just trying to, I know he's out there. I'm just trying to find him, trying to understand what's going on. I'm seeking. I, I just want to know the truth. Of all these religions even that seem to indicate that they have some idea or concept of God, as we see in Romans chapter 1, but they're not seeking God. No one can. Their heart is evil. There is a king on the heart. There is a king on your heart who does not want anyone else to sit there. So why look? Why look? They're not seeking anything because they don't want a king there. It's already occupied. I think there's two reasons that it appears that people are seeking God. They want the things that God gives. Love, help, strength, forgiveness, happiness, purpose. But they don't want God himself. They want the things that he gives. And you hear this from people who say, well, they fall away from the faith. I just, you know, I just, me and God weren't, weren't connecting. I, I'm not really seeing why I'm not getting these things. The Bible says I'm supposed to. I'm not. And then the second issue is that they want to seek God as they want God to be. No one seeks the God of the Bible no one seeks the God of Sinai, who comes down in fire and smoke, who, as we talked about last weekend, pushes people away. His holiness makes people draw back. When you approach the burning bush, Moses, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. When you approach the mountain, stay back. If you touch it, you'll die. When you approach the center of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is the Holy of Holies, stay back. You will die. This is the presence of God. No one wants that God. No one wants him. And I think that shows us the hidden truth of Christmas. You see, this, this dark episode that we see played out for us in King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance to and even hatred of the claims of God on our lives. He was worried about his earthly kingdom, his very real earthly kingdom that he was sitting in the throne of. And what did he do? He did one of the worst things you could possibly imagine. And we sit here on a Sunday thinking about football and gifts and exciting things that are coming, and we don't have time in our hearts, as we talked about last weekend as well, for the things of God. Meanwhile, God is making an absolute claim on all of our life. It's this hyperbolic language that we don't really like. I don't like to think that I'm prone to that. I do exaggerate some, but Scripture's not exaggerating. No one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. There is no one who seeks God. These are not hyper, this is not hyperbolic language. This is the state of affairs. This is what is going on. This is the truth of humanity. He is making an absolute claim on your life. All right, so I've spoken in many large generalities about the human race. Let's talk about religious people, us. Even religious people try to form God in their own image. Religious people are just as hostile to the sovereignty of God as the irreligious. They just find religious ways to express it and hide it. How do we do this? We create gods to our liking. Why? To mask our own hostility to God. We don't like it to, to be a true thing that we are hostile towards God. So how can we soften that blow? How can we make it not look as bad as it is? How can we not be at enmity with our creator? How can we be in some sort of peacefulness so that we're not staring down the wrath of God and we can abate it in our minds a little bit? What do we do? We create gods to mask our hostility. God reveals himself as absolute king. We tone it down a little bit. 
or we put something else in power that we can control. So think about our source idols that we talk about at renovation, power, control, affirmation, comfort. If it's not simply us sitting on the throne of our heart with Jesus at our right hand, as we command him to do, then it is us out here worshiping our idol. You think about power. How do you respond to people who threaten your power, your influence? You diminish their influence. You take them away as a factor. You think about control. How do you handle people? How do you treat people around you who don't live up to your standards? How do you treat yourself (laughs) when you don't live up to your standards? How do you impose on other people the things that you desire? Affirmation. How do you remake yourself into a different image so that someone else will find you pleasing? How do you rework your schedule so that you can be about the things of the person that you're interested in? How do you think about and dwell in your mind on the person that you want affirmation from? On one end, they become everything that you desire, and they are your source of happiness. And when they reject you at the other end, you have to destroy them. And then us comfort folks. What do we do? And remaking God in our image. That God won't require difficult things from us. That yeah, the Christian life comes from faithfulness, so we just kind of do our thing. We have to work hard at it? I'll just I'll just be faithful longer rather than work hard now. Is that cool? <laughs> God's command on my life isn't total, right? I mean, that's, that's really uncomfortable. Just mostly. Yes? We defend these idols like every day. We wake up with them on the throne of our heart and we defend them. And we would even murder children for them. We do. We do. We, we don't think about the hateful things that we do to each other. and hate being murder. The cost that other people have to pay so that our idol can maintain sovereignty and not just the things that we do to harm them but the things that we don't do to help them the things that we don't do to care for our brothers and sisters although to love one another it's impossible to love one another while you love yourself only we cannot love other people when we are only concerned about the idol of our own maintaining sovereignty If we're going to obey all of Jesus' commands and thus show the world that we love him and that we belong to him, then we cannot be only about seeking our kingdom and maintaining our idol's sovereignty. And so we will pay any cost to maintain sovereignty, finding all that would oppose us, and even if they're not, just in case, putting them down. If the Lord born at Christmas was the true God, then no one will seek him unless our hearts are supernaturally changed to want and seek him. No one seeks God on their own. Why do you think it's so hard to pray? I'm in a room full of pastors last week for a meeting, a network meeting, and we're supposed to pray for 15 minutes. And only like one group of three can actually pray that long. Why is it so hard for us to pray that long? Why, when God answers a prayer, do we say, Oh, I will never forget this, Lord. I'll never forget this, but soon you do anyway. It just happened to me three times in the past two weeks. I pray for months over a specific event. It happens. God is good. And does amazing things and cares for me in ways that I would never have seen coming, even in praying for it, for months. And what happens in the very next meeting, completely unrelated, with someone else I'm having a difficult conversation with? I'm shaking in my boots. Why? 
I forgot what God has done. He reminds the Israelites every time he speaks to them, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from Egypt. Don't forget that. We forget all the time. God is faithful. He goes out in front of us. He's our mighty warrior that goes before us. We forget. We think we're in the battle alone. How many times have you said, I will, I will never do this again, and you repent, and then two weeks later you, you do it again? Romans 7.15, Paul says, what I hate, I do. There's still a little King Herod inside you. It means that you've, <laughs> you've got to be far more intentional about Christian growth, about prayer, about accountability to other people to overcome your sin. You can't just glide through the Christian life. There's still something in you that fights it. I quote Yoda again in his most blunt statement. He lifts the X-wing out of the swamp, sets it down. Luke looks at him and says, I don't believe it. Yoda says, that is why you fail. If we can't wrap our minds and open up our hearts and recognize that there's a real king on our hearts, then we will fail. Believe it. Recognize the weightiness of what we're talking about this Christmas when we're talking about idolatry. It's not idolatry of the season. It's idolatry of ourselves. Where's the true king? That question is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart. Because we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. We may use religion to stay on that throne, trying to manipulate and put God in the position of having to do our bidding because we're so righteous. Rather than serving him ourselves unconditionally, we may flee from religion and become atheists and, and just loudly claim that there's no God but me. Either way, we are expressing our natural hostility to the lordship of the true king of the universe, the one who claims absolute authority. Where's the true king? Second thing I want you to see today is the weakness of Christ's kingdom. The weakness of Christ's kingdom. Christmas means that the king has come into the world, right? Emmanuel, God with us, the king of the universe has humbled himself and to put on flesh and has tabernacled amongst us. But the Bible tells us that Jesus comes as king twice, not once, twice. See, the second time he will come in power in order to end all evil and all suffering and all death. The end of that story that we talked about last week. But the first time, the, the Christmas coming, he came not in, in strength, but in weakness to a poor family in a stable. And Jesus routinely does not behave like, a, like the world would expect, like a king that the world would expect, right? He didn't have any academic credentials, no social status. I mean, when Joseph brought the family back, he settled as far from the centers of royal powers as he could. He went to Nazareth. And so Jesus wasn't merely born in a manger. He grew up a Nazarene. What does that mean? Well, you get a hint from Nathaniel in John chapter 1, where he learns that Jesus is from Nazareth. He's, he's appalled, right? He's appalled. He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? I mean, everyone in Judea looked down upon anyone from the backwater of Nazareth and Galilee, much like Kentucky, right? Sorry. We look back, and sorry, I, I got hateful stares right there. Everyone else agrees with me. It's okay. And we look at the backwater, Appalachia, right? And we're like, what can come from there? That's good. It's the land of moonshine and mountains, right? What good can come from there? We don't expect lofty theological treatises to come from there. We don't expect uh, political powers to rise out of the mountains of Tennessee and Kentucky, right? Wisconsin, Minnesota. These random places in the middle of nowhere that are either mountainous or tundra, right? Where do we expect these things to come from? The institutions of learning. Harvard, New York City, 
Hollywood. These are where the big ideas come from. What comes from that backwater country? It's the same way that Nathaniel looks at Jesus. Son of a carpenter from Nazareth. You're going to change the world? (laughs) You're God? All right. All right, we can roll with that. The world has always despised people from the wrong places and with the wrong credentials. We're always trying to justify ourselves. Trying to justify ourselves. We need desperately to feel superior to others. And everything about Jesus contradicts and opposes that impulse. The Bible's teaching is not only that God does not operate like the world, but that he habitually operates in the very opposite way. The greatest personage in the history of the world was born in a manger and came from Nazareth. It's throughout the Bible we see this. What does he do? God initially brings his message not through the Egyptians, not through the Romans, the Assyrians, not even the Babylonians, but through the Jews, a small nation and a little race that's seldom ever in power. He dispatches Goliath, not with, a, not with a bigger giant, right? I'm reminded of Avengers, we have a Hulk, right? God doesn't bring a bigger giant along. He doesn't make David grow like Alice in Wonderland. He brings out a little shepherd boy and knocks him down with a rock. A little shepherd boy at whom the giant laughed at. That's the way that God works, right? How does he talk to Elijah? Earth, wind, and fire, September? No, through the still, small voice still small voice for real let's look at how he does this in ancient times when the oldest son always got all the wealth and the the second or younger sons had no social status and hardly any any kind of uh, inheritance how does god work through abel not cain through isaac not ishmael through jacob not esau through ephraim not manasseh through david not his older brothers doesn't just happen occasionally all the time at a time when women were valued for their beauty and their fertility God chooses old Sarah not young Hagar he chooses Leah not Rachel unattractive Leah whom Jacob doesn't even love he chooses Rebecca who can't have children. Hannah, who can't have children. Samson's mother, who can't have children. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, who can't have children. Why? Over and over and over again, God says, I will choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I choose the girl nobody wants. I'll choose the boy that everybody has forgotten. Why? Is it just that God likes underdogs? He likes the the upset win on Saturday? No, he's telling us something about salvation itself and the history of salvation. Every other religion and moral philosophy tells you to summon up all of your strength, right? And to live as you ought to. Follow this path. Do these things. Say these things. Give to these things. Go to this place. And therefore they appeal to the strong, right? To the people who can pull it together. If I have pretty good control of my life, but I want something more, that's appealing to me because I can make that happen. I can make that happen. Only Jesus says, I've come for the weak. I've come for those who admit that they are weak. I will save them not by what they do, but by what I do. 
Now, I know <laughs> some of you want to look strong. I do, often. Right? And we do everything that we can to maintain that illusion. We try to clean up as much of our stuff as we can on our own. We try to hide the skeletons in our closet so that we don't look as weak as we are. But also know that some of you know that you're not strong, and this is the greatest news ever. Maybe you thought you were at some point, but you've tried, and you've tried, and you've tried, and you just can't make it happen. I'm telling you this morning, that's okay. In fact, that's the point. Stop trying. Come home. Throughout Jesus' life, the apostles and the disciples keep saying to him, Jesus, when are you going to take power and and save the world? And Jesus keeps saying, you don't understand. I'm going to lose all my power and die to save the world. At the climax of his life, he ascended not a throne, but a cross. He came as our substitute to bear evil and suffering and death. All consequences of our turning from God. And he did this so that if we believe, we can be reconciled to him. Why? So when that he comes the second time as king, he can end all evil without ending us. <laughs> his weakness was really his strength. So where does this bring us? I think simply to a comfort and to a challenge. A comfort and a challenge. There's lots of points of application we've already hit on. If we want to bring this home and talk about the kingship of your life and the kingship that Jesus is, here's the comfort. I don't care who you are. (laughs) I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what deep, dark secrets are in your past. I don't care how badly you've messed up. Listen, if you repent and you believe and you trust God's message about you and what he has done through Jesus Christ, not only will God accept you, he delights to work through people like you. He's done that through all of world history. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. You need to go. (laughs) You need to go. You need to go to people who are just like you. They need the good news too. To all the needy, to all the lost, to all the dying, to all the poor, to all the lonely. Go to them. Bring them home. Share the good news. God delights in the weakness of his children. I don't get frustrated when my kid can't pick up a gallon of milk. I think it's the cutest thing on on earth. And I help them. Their weakness is a time for me to show my strength and care for them. They don't have to have it all figured out. God delights in rescuing his children. He delights in displaying his strength on our behalf. So he's done that. He's called the church to that as well. We are to stand up and show our spiritual strength for the sake of the needy, the lost, the oppressed. Galatians 6, the spiritual are supposed to help those who are in sin. If you're in sin... Look to those in the church that can help you. Romans 1. They've suppressed the truth. Take the truth. Show them the truth. Go. Good news is not just for you. It's not so that you can set up your own kingdom of Jesus in your heart. 
so that you can draw men to him. So, what are you looking for this Christmas? Take a look at your life and your heart today. In this next song, just stay seated if you need to and think. Think about this question today. While you're out amongst the crowds, while you're getting or giving gifts, while you're eating great dinners, while you're spending time with wonderful friends, and ask, where is the king? Do I know him? Is he at my right hand? Or is he on the throne? Or is the king? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to open our hearts, to expose what's going on inside. Father, to look at your word in, in such a seemingly obscure narrative, to see revealing truth about our lives, revealing truth about our hearts. And Father, you expose our tendencies. And it seems so old hat to just name it as idolatry but father idolatry is our issue we want to be you father humble us today let today be the start of repentance let today be the start of looking at our hearts let today be the start of every day asking where's the king Where's the king of glory who sits on the throne? Where's the king of glory that comes back on a, on a white horse? Where's the king of glory that on the third day rose from the dead? Where's the king of glory that can open the scroll? Where's the king of glory that will throw the dragon into the pit? Where's the king of glory that promised redemption and, and showed it in Egypt and showed it to all of his people? Where's the king of glory who hears our cries, who delights in raising up the weak? Father, we trade all of that for a mask that says we're king. Lord, help us see the futility of our kingdom. Not only that it cannot stand against your kingdom, but Father, it is no kingdom at all. And the gods we worship are no gods at all. And Father, you've revealed yourself to us, and we treasure that. Help us treasure that this Christmas. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.